Welcome to the Game Changers podcast. We are your hosts, Associate Professor of Education and Enterprise, Philip Cummins, and prominent educational thought leader, Adriano Prado. The Game Changers podcast aims to not only put a spotlight on the innovative ideas shaping the landscape of 21st century schooling, but to enter into a deep dialogue with those brave pioneers, the true game changers in education, those individuals that don't wait for permission, leaders in education who are actually courageous enough to make real change in their learning community as they foster the growth of each young person in their care to ultimately thrive in this new world environment. These are their stories. A mind-controlled wheelchair, virtual and augmented reality rehabilitation, inclusive gaming, an instrument that enables your friend with cerebral palsy to play music with her eyes and blinks, devices that make it possible to control household appliances or even drive cars using only the tiny electrical signals created from eye movements. This is just part of the work of the remarkable Dr. Geordie Nguyen, who does so much for so many people in so many different ways. He is a polymath. He is a scientist. He is an inventor. He is an educator. He is a speaker. He's ridiculously handsome and has much better hair than me. I'm excited. I can't wait. Let's go. Before we start our conversation with today's Game Changers guest, Phil, can you share with our audience a little insight into our Series 12 sponsor? Thanks, Adriano. Of course. We are proud to be partnered with the education team of the Museum of Australian Democracy at Old Parliament House in Canberra, Australia's capital city. Looking for civics and citizenship experiences and resources to empower voice and agency in your Australian classroom? The MOAD Learning Team have got you covered with on-site and online experiences for teachers and young people of all ages. Visit MOAD Learning at M-O-A-D-O-P-H dot gov dot A-U forward slash learning. That's M-O-A-D-O-P-H dot gov dot A-U forward slash learning. Phil, it is so wonderful to be with you again. Uh, now, can you please tell our, our esteemed audience, why is it as now a newly kind of minted Melbourneian, you have chosen to ignore the most sacred days in Melbourne, the Melbourne Cup? Well, for exactly the same reason that I chose to ignore that other allegedly sainted day, which is Grand Final Day, oh, I have absolutely no interest outrageous. in the ponies or that pretend code that you play. On the other hand, I, I do know the Wallabies won 16-15 over Scotland on the weekend. Oh, that's nice for the animals. That's lovely. Anyway, enough of this nonsense. Let's get to our guests. Oh, I'm so excited about this. Phil, you don't understand. I've been fanboying uh, Dr. Jordan Nguyen for years and years, and we met recently uh, on a panel in Queensland, and unfortunately he had to put up with uh, me harassing him the entire time. Anyway. Poor Jordan. you, Jordy. Poor you. Yeah, exactly. Jordan, <laughs> let's let's get to uh, the very first question, the question that we ask all of our guests at Game Changes, and that is tell us a little bit about your story and how you've gotten to where you are today. Uh, awesome. I'll, I'll start there. Um, thanks for having me, gents. It's it's a uh, it's a pleasure. Uh, so let's go. Yeah, a bit about the background. Uh, what started me on this journey? I, I think I'll take it back just for for educators and for school kids to realise that you know this has not just been uh, a vision that I've always had. I've never never had that that drive when I was younger to become what I am today. Uh, this came over time, and this is why I say we should always start with inspiration. All I've known my whole life is that inspiration has come from my parents. My mum is Aussie Scottish. She's an artist. 
Uh, I love the, the social compassionate side, uh, the artistic creative side uh, of my mother. And, and that's something that's always come through in everything I've done. Uh, my dad is, is Vietnamese and he is a professor. So I was exposed to a lot of my dad's work through, uh, through most of my life, right from a young age, exposed to all the different types of technology that he was building, the things that he was working on, like robotics, I could see um, his work in robots and AI were it's just fascinating. I went to go into to university with him when I was young, and I uh, this is sort of late 80s, early 90s, getting to see uh, a, a robot picking up some of my toys and moving them around. It was big claw, had a big uh, pillar and a claw sticking out from it. And it was picking up my toys and moving them around. Then it was going on to playing games like noughts and crosses and checkers and chess. And this to me was just, it was fascinating. So to, uh, to sort of later on in life, follow that pathway. I've got triplet siblings and they all went towards that. They're younger, three years younger than me, uh, two brothers and a sister, Alexander, Tristan and Zohara. And they all moved towards the medical space. So they went into, both brothers went into medicine. Uh, my sister went into speech pathology. And, uh, and for me, I was still thinking about those things I was interested in of my father's work. Um, late high school, I was not overachieving in any way whatsoever. I, I was struggling through school because I didn't know why I was learning what I was learning. And this is the sort of thing that I advocate so heavily for now being able to, to find inspiration for our students and helping them to find their why, helping them to find their purpose. Um, I didn't have this at the end of high school, but I managed to get into electrical engineering and, uh, and start working on robots. Uh, soon after that, I realized this was awesome, but I'm more interested in people. And so I started to bring together this level of, of interest and inspiration together so I could uh, move into a, a space that was going to be purposeful. Uh, it was my third year of university. I dived into a backyard pool at a birthday party. I uh, went straight into the, the bottom of that pool, had my hands out, but my head hit the bottom of the pool first, and I felt this massive crunch across the back of my neck. And um, I was put flat on my back for a day and a half. I wasn't able to get up. I wasn't able to roll over onto my side. And it just changed everything, all those things that I, I took for granted in life. Um, so when I went out after that, started looking up statistics, I found out these staggering things. Uh, what I found was one in five Australians have some form of a disability and one in 16 Australians have severe or profound disability. And it was really where all the adventure started because what happened was I started going and meeting people and hearing their stories. And to meet people with high-level physical disability, um, that was really what, what started to, to change everything for me. I had friends telling me and letting me know if you set your mind to it, you can achieve it. So that changed my way of thinking and really all the adventures started from there. Well, first of all, um, thank you very much for sharing uh, that personal moment just then around uh, purpose being born from an accident. Mm. But I, I want to talk about that a little bit later and around your work and its purpose and this notion of that we're probably in the age of the human, even though we've seen a rise of artificial intelligence and automation. But I want to take us take you back to, to that moment when your dad took you to uni and you saw that robot pick up your toys. What was it in that moment about this artificial kind of life form that intrigued you so much that that seems to be a, a significant part of now what it is that you do in terms of this, this synergy between technology and the human what was it in that moment that just struck you? 
It's a, it's a great way of putting it. The, the synergy between technology really is what I was finding very, very quickly. This is called anthropomorphism. It's where we project human personalities and characteristics onto things that aren't human. And we can't help it. We do it all the time. Uh, and that was, that was really something that I wasn't picking apart or analyzing at that point in time. I was about five years old. But what I could see was that this robot had a personality. No, no one was telling me you know, that this is the personality they built into it. They built, uh, built it to learn for itself. Um, but that's what I was noticing. I was watching it learning for itself. So he, uh, my dad, he'd put these uh, Duplo blocks, so my old toys, and then it was started with Duplo blocks and it moved on to more complex uh, shapes. But the, the Duplo blocks themselves, you know, large, you know, like large Lego for anyone who doesn't know what Duplo blocks are, um, large Lego for, for infants, and they move along this conveyor belt. This robot would watch them and then it would go and pick them up and move them elsewhere. Uh, what was happening was it was learning for itself through trial and error. It was making mistakes, uh, but it was getting better and better at it. And then the funniest thing happened, this, this RTX, uh, as it was called, RTX uh, robot, it, uh, it, it started to shudder as soon as it saw uh, the horse. So there's this horse duplo block, and my dad put that on the conveyor belt. He wasn't sure how it was going to go. And, uh, and the robot started shuddering. It started, started really getting jolty in its movements, and it was trying to chase it. And next thing, the whole thing just crashed. It just shut down. And what happened after that was uh, my dad had, had another go at it, tried it again. It would follow it for a bit longer. It would actually follow the, the, uh, the horse along the conveyor belt because it's got a camera in the claw facing down. So that's how it could see. So the claw would kind of follow the, the horse. Same thing happened. It kept crashing. And uh, so the computer would crash. And then eventually I saw it take a try at it. It went down, tried to hit the horse. I would pick up the horse. It actually missed it completely went through the conveyor belt and then hit the, uh, hit the metal underneath, broke its, its claw, dead, quickly shut it down. They had to uh, take it out and then it had to be fixed, uh, which funny enough was just on the tape. But they did put a lot, of, a lot of tape on this part of the claw and then they got it going again. Now, what I was watching was this constant thing of it just learning for itself. It went on to playing games like Noughts and Crosses and Checkers and Chess. When I played it in Noughts and Crosses, uh, I saw it very quickly after seven games of not seemingly knowing how to play very quickly using my tactics against me. And then it moved on to, uh, to checkers. We started playing that. Uh, and anytime it took one of my pieces, it would take it to the edge of the table and dump it. And I love that because it would take it piece and carefully place it in the position it took. To me, it felt like it was taunting me as well. So I, I just remember the entire time, I didn't feel like I was just there with some lifeless machine just running programs. I felt like I was there with some sort of entity. It had a personality. And that was something that I thought about for the future and wanted to bring that into my newer designs. So we bring a lot of human personality and characteristic into the things that we do. The new robots I build now look more like they're something out of Wally uh, because I think the animations have just got it so right. Uh, and particularly when it comes to bringing across human emotions, human personality, um, whilst not falling down the uncanny valley curve, not making it too human-like that it can freak us out. Uh, but these are the sort of things that we can go into. It's, it's always, always interesting to bring these, these uh, human emotions and heart into everything that you do, do and design. Jordi, I want to take this further if I can. Uh, obviously, a lot of this work that you're doing it comes from um, Psychonetic, which is uh, your, your startup social business that's aimed at creating futuristic, inclusive and empowering technologies to improve independence and quality of life. I, I want to dig into, if you'd like, 
some of the implications of this work that extend from that answer that you've just given there. There is a liminal space between technolo- what is techno- technological and what is human. And this has caused, uh, caused a variety of narratives to be constructed over the last 100, 150, 200 years. Ever since the time of the Luddites, there's been an inherent fear that's of machines replacing human about the natural order of things being reversed that is if there is an order of things it's, i mean you know that's that 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 assumes of course that you know human beings sit on top of a hierarchy which i think probably many of us would question today particularly in the notion of an interdependent planet but this fear of the artificial we can't live like this in our world our world simply can't like we can you know there are, there are some communities that can shut themselves away and, and pretend for a bit but even those communities um, have to engage with this world. So if there is this liminal space between technolo- uh, technology and humanity, what qualities, apart from a willingness to indulge in anthropomorphism, um, what qualities do we need to connect the two? What qualities do we need as learners to navigate this liminal space? It's a great question. And to me, a lot of that comes back to that inspiration and purpose side. I don't just say this because for me, I know it to be true. When we start with a level of inspiration and purpose behind why we go on an adventure, why we do what we do, why we come up with a new idea and why we're willing to pursue it, that's really important because if you can keep asking that question and keep, you know, and you know that you've got an answer for it, why am I doing this? Then that gets you through because it's never easy to, to uh, really put yourself out there to really try and build a team around a big idea and make it happen, no matter how big that idea is, um, it, can be, it can be really challenging. You're going to hit many barriers along the way. I'll use a couple of examples. Uh, to begin with, uh, in university, I'll go through this one pretty quickly, but in university, after meeting different friends, I wanted to see if it was possible to advance the research towards building a mind-controlled wheelchair. Now, I found very quickly through doing neuroscience, medical science, um, medical device um, subjects, I found out very quickly that we could connect the electronics and the technology with the human body. So being able to pick up on the different signals of the body, the the, um, uh, different electrical signals, like uh, what happens in the brain, you know, the brain is constantly active with electrical energy. So that's what I was doing, putting a headband around uh, different friends of mine, picking up on those little electrical signals from outside the skull. It was completely non-invasive, just uses electrodes that can sit on the outside. It sends that data into a computer. The computer runs neural networks. Uh, and that's the type of artificial intelligence. We hear about it all the time. The main types of artificial intelligence that we interact with day to day is called machine learning. And uh, neural networks is a, is a part of that. So what it, machine learning is very good at is finding patterns and differences in data. It's very, very good at this. And so what it was doing in this particular case was it was learning to recognize the difference between brainwave patterns when you're focusing on different thoughts. So you associate a different thought with a different movement. Uh, the wheelchair would take over. It, was, it itself was a robot. It would make the travel safe. Now, I started on that project 2006. I did trials in 2008. Um, which I ended up having to cancel because I realized that human connection piece wasn't there enough. And that's how I, I really learned that, that lesson. I had a friend turn up and go, you know, he was, he was having a look at the wheelchair and he goes, this is awesome. Let me know when I can come back and trial it. And I went, oh, this is what you're here for. It's, we're going to trial it today. And he goes, oh, yeah, but there's no head, headrest. I need a headrest to hold my head up. And I went, oh, I, I didn't know that. I actually took the headrest out. 
And I went, oh yeah, I should put that back in. And he goes, yeah. And there's no seatbelt. I need a seatbelt to hold me upright because I can't hold myself into my wheelchair. I went, these things come with seatbelts? I had no idea. So realizing that human connection side was such an important piece of, of what we were doing. Now, moving forward, going beyond this, um, what we do in Psychinetic was I set up Psychinetic to take forward that, that mind-controlled wheelchair research um, to see if there's a, a lot more we could do with it. Uh, Psychinetic is psyche and kinetic. It's putting the mind into action. And what we did from there was we started realizing everyone we were working with from um, many different backgrounds, all kinds of dif uh, different um, conditions and disability, from cerebral palsy to motor neuron disease, spinal cord injuries, strokes, um, Parkinson's. Something interesting we found, no matter how high the level of physical disability, almost everyone we were meeting had good control over their eyes. And that's because the eyes are the brain. So being able to uh, move into a space like that where we just went, you know what? Eyes are a bit easier for many applications. So we started using uh, systems that we could just buy from the States. We, we went, let's not reinvent the wheel. There are some pretty awesome innovations out there. So we started harnessing eye trackers that we were able to buy from the States. They're really good for things like market research, whereas a person looking at on a screen when they're interacting with it, uh, it's good for gaming. And at the same time, really, really good for, uh, for the inclusive technology space. So what happens is uh, a person can look on the screen. We've got not only an app store, but we've got SDKs, software development kits that we can hand out to other developers. They can build their own games and applications. And then we've got a range of our own applications from communication to gaming to music. That means that a person can control that just using their eyes. They can look around the screen and learn to, to gain control. Uh, with the communication, we've had some people use our communicator device up to 50 words a minute uh, faster typing with their eyes than average hand typing speeds. Uh, and this, this came out of wanting to, to rebuild Stephen Hawking's device, which we were doing before he passed away. Uh, unfortunately, he did pass away before we could send it to him. We had three new updates for them. And that was really looking into how we could speed up this system. When we use the AI um, different approaches in, in artificial intelligence, this is something that you, you did mention, and this is, a, this is a fascinating thing. We have been, as, as humans, on the verge of losing our jobs to automation for many generations. If you go back, as, as you've, you've obviously seen, um, there's been that fear and that threat there for many generations. Uh, artificial intelligence as a term was coined in 1956. That was when the term was coined. It was already being thought about before that. Uh, and there were rises and falls over the decades. And, uh, and then we got to this point in the last 10 years where it really became truly scalable and useful in business. That's why we're seeing it taking off in a whole new way, unlike ever before. And sometimes those, uh, those advancements can be quite uncomfortable, which is why yeah. we need to be able to talk about the things that we want, the things we don't want. Um, and we don't have to all be technologists to have that impact either. You can just have this conversation, but know about what is actually out there, what is possible with AI. And really what it does is, like I said, machine learning, the main type, finds patterns and differences in data. What that can then do is it comes down to our creativity as to how we use it. Now, the narrative for a long time there was creativity and human creativity can't be replicated. Now, this is already starting to be challenged because there are a number of different types of artificial intelligence out there that can do things like write a poem that will have, uh, that'll be funny, have context to it. Uh, it can do things like um, create artworks. But this is the thing that's missing. And this is the human side of it. 
a lot of our creativity comes back to our experience, our personal stories and what we're sharing. And that's what we get drawn to in artworks and um, in the works of other people. A lot of the time it's what we're being drawn to is being involved in some way in their story. And so human to human connection is always a critical thing for us to keep focusing on because you can't replace that with technology. So, Geordie, if I if, thank you for sharing that 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 story and that that analysis of, of it. If I break it all down, I can very much hear um, a, a combination of 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 the curiosity, of the compassion, of courage, and of conviction, and, and that you know they're they're the, that they're the character dispositions that we would see sitting behind um, any any type of game changing approach. Got to be prepared to ask why. You've got to be have a deep sense of the other. Uh, and a willingness um, to to put their needs before yourself. You've got to have the courage to try stuff, um, even though you might fail. And you've got to have a sense of conviction that's going to carry you through all the way through. So, if that's the if that's the character piece, now what I want you to think about is what what are the competencies that high school graduates need to exhibit this type of character to thrive in our world today? To be honest, that's you know. Uh... A really great question. And it's the sort of thing that if I was to ever sort of think about what would I have loved to have known before I left high school, uh, the things that I didn't know, to me, going out into the world was this big black hole. I just could not even imagine what work could be like, what study was like. I just didn't even know. You know, apart from the, the few times I'd turn up to open days at universities, I had no idea what was out there. So really what I've found in the lessons that I've, I've learned from not only the things that I've done, the teams I've worked with, but also on top of that, the documentaries I've done, what has created success for different people in, in terms of their version of success. You know, that's, not all, that's definitely not always monetary. Uh, a lot of it is finding the things that make us happy, being able to create, a, uh, create work, create a, a career out of the things that we love doing, um, the things that have an impact. And what I found is really being adaptable to the changes that are coming our way. That is just so important because the changes are much faster than ever before. So being able to, to recognize that you might have built up your skills in one space, but you want to keep learning. You want to keep learning towards the things that you find interesting and the things that can help you progress where you're, you're going. Having some form of vision of where you would like to get to. That part's important. That can change. That can shape and change. It can completely be rewritten at certain points in time based on your experiences. But having an idea of where you can see yourself in the future, where you'd like to end up um, and working towards that, you know, taking those steps in that direction means you're not taking a scattergun approach, which I have seen as well. I've, I've got mates who have racked up five different degrees, completely different spaces, and it was just because I didn't know where they were going. You know, they'd finish a degree and go, you know, this is not really for me. I'm going to take something else on, try something completely different. And uh, I think that's where we were all sort of headed. I mean, I almost ended up dropping out of engineering and going into psychology. I was, I was very lucky to find what I love doing within the the, uh, the direction. Yeah, I was but, that, but but Geordie, that's that, that that's the beauty of all of this. And and as and as my esteemed um, colleague, the art teacher, yeah. um, would say. Constructing false binaries is what human beings do, and we have to be very careful around that. We need both the Renzulli experience, where we have lots and lots of things scattergunned all around, so we can pick this, 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 and this. But we also need that sort of Piaget-like um, feeling that there is some sort of ontological narrative which is driving us. That's right. Forward, you know, and you know, and you know, and so 
we, we, we need both to coexist at the same time. And I guess that's why earlier I was talking about that liminal space that there is between here and here, because you, you need and and rather than or or. No, that's right. No, absolutely true. And, and this is somewhere I wanted to go with this, this answer, because the things that I thought I needed uh, in life to be able to find that one thing that I, I wanted to do and the things that I kept being told when I was younger, um, things like uh, being able to task switch and how inefficient that is. I, I did a bunch of different uh, uh, during work, during uh, studies, we were given these, these different examples of how to task switch and how it can be really inefficient compared to if you focus. Now, what I found was that I wanted to do very different things. I wanted to do a number of different things, but I knew that the reason why I was wanting to do all those different things, they all sort of stay in the same kind of realm. And, uh, and being able to try, like you're saying, being able to try, um, sometimes it feels a bit scattergun, but being able to try different types of skills, different types of, um, of experiences, and then finding links between them can be really important. Um, but if you know why you're doing it, that's, that's, very, that, that's the, the key to it. So this is why I've ended up in communication. I've been doing documentaries. Um, I still build, and it was not just wanting to build electronics or you know, a certain part of a robot. I want to learn how to build all of it. So I do everything from CAD modeling, um, computer-aided design, building 3D models on the computer, 3D printing things, um, the electronics, the software, uh, the entire system design, and then the interaction between people and those, those systems. Um, but then at the same time, I also work with teams on getting big projects out to the people. So this is, uh, this is something that's, that's very important. So understanding yourself is, is key to all. Where do you want to head in life? And at the same time, how can you collaborate with people and those big visions, those big ideas? Uh, and not being scared. You know, like I said before, courage to be able to take on uh, your, your big dreams, your big ideas and take action on them. I'm hearing lots of things in your conversation here with, with Phil and I'm, I'm really enjoying this exchange. And I'm sure there'll be listeners who will be nerding out on some of the things that you're sharing with us, uh, Jordan. I'm hearing that for young people today to truly thrive in this, in this new world that they find themselves in now and the world that they are obviously going to be stewards of in the future, I'm hearing the, the significance of collaboration and teamwork and, and, and why, why the inclusive nature of teamwork is crucial for us to continue to advance forward. I'm hearing that communication is a significant skill, but the key attribute I'm hearing from you is this idea of deep listening to the other, to really truly understand what it is are the inherent needs of all those. And, you, you, you know, you painted the picture a moment ago about, about the person you engaged with that needed that headrest. You know, you got rid of it, but then through active listening, they explained why that was, you know, and why that was going to be of a benefit. I'm also hearing we need to have... Uh, generations of young people that lean into technology and digital fluency, that they need to understand that uh, this is part of their toolkit and, right. and can only enhance their humanness. I'm hearing the inherent value of problem solving and, and, and of course, you know, creativity, which is a wheelhouse that I, I'm really comfortable with. I'm also hearing, though, when you talk about this notion of being self-aware and self-management, there's an ethical thread in all of that, isn't there? There's a real strong ethical thread about what is our responsibility in, in using this type of technology? Uh, how can we use it to aid human advancement and create social change, not for, for an evil context or a selfless one? And, and wrapped around that, of course, is then the, the emotional competency or the emotional intelligence to be able to, 
to, to really feel our way through that and really understand it. But adaptability and self-efficacy seem to be the strongest, you know, kind of dispositions that you're sharing with us. So this is what I'm learning from, from Dr. Jordan Nguyen today uh, about your remarkable work, but more importantly, your remarkable story. And I want to come back to story now. You shared at the very beginning of this show the influence of your mum from, from a, your, your emotion and compassionate side and the influence from your father in, in many ways from, from this, this, this creativity and, and uh, curiosity side. So much of the work that you do, psychokinetic and other, other things that you do, is influencing many, right? So we, we're talking about the dignity of our inherent humanity and how in which you can create designs that ultimately transform the lives of people, particularly with disabilities, as you illustrated, the elderly and so on. So there's enormous influence in what you're doing with your work. Apart from mum and dad, who has influenced you and why? It's a great question, really great question. Uh, a lot of people. I've taken influence from a lot of areas. A lot of people I look up to, everyday people around me, just the way that people have thought. Uh, so... Coming back to what I mentioned before, when people expressed to me, if you set your mind to it, you can achieve it. There were people who became friends I have been working with for a long time. And I loved that way of thinking because that was something that I wanted to remind myself of as well. Uh, when I left university, I engraved on the back of an iPod, one life persists to improve many. And I did this partly because I was limited by the number of, of letters I could fit on the back of an iPod. <laughs> Uh, but I also just went, I want to try and write some form of a purpose statement. And it took me a little while to write it because I thought at the time, I thought, oh, maybe I need to write a number of, you know, try and put a metric around it or anything like that. And I went, I don't want to get to that point where I go, okay, I've, do I've done my job now. Now what? Um, I just thought this is something that however it looks, however it feels right, I'm setting a base of integrity. It's not just a purpose statement or a mission mm -hmm. statement. I'm setting my base of integrity of how I want to make decisions in life. And that part is very important for you to know who you want to be no matter what happens. And that has, that I feel like that has kept me grounded. You know, no matter where I've gone in, in media, no matter how many um, you know, great things I've, I've felt like I've been able to, to get involved with, it doesn't change who I am because I've got that, that, solid, that solid base. And I think, you know, when it comes to that influence from people around us, my parents, my family have had a huge influence on the things that I've chosen to go and do, but it's not just their influence. It's also that love for them allows me to empathize with everyone, to know that everyone has someone they love or they care about in their world. And that allows me to see those connections and feel those connections between family members, um, between other, other groups and communities that I get involved with. And that's, that's what helps drive a lot of the, the things that I do. Um, when it comes to other inspirations out there, there have been, you know, the big inspirations. I, I share commonality with many people, David Attenborough, uh, some of the, uh, some of the, um, uh, the great minds, uh, Carl Sagan, Da Vinci, you know, going back into the past and like learning about different people's way of thinking. Um, but what I also found was that there was a kind of a gap of who I would look up to the most. And I used to think about this. I remember thinking about it and, and almost creating this character, this, this idea of a person who was a combination of so many different fiction and non-fiction characters and people. And I just went, who would that person be that I would look up to the most, that I would just follow their pathway all the way through? 
and I went, it's, it's a combination. It's a combination and there's a lot of, lot of their own traits as well. And so I decided moving towards filling that gap. And what that allowed me to do was to be led by the things that I felt were right, the things that I wanted to, to see achieved in, in life. And it's a strange thing to say, but I started to become, as a result, a bit of a, an observer in my own life. Yeah. And that's a strange thing to, to kind of say, but it's, that's how it started to feel. And, uh, and then you're kind of sitting back going, does this, does this seem right? Does it not? And when you know your integrity it, it, and, and who you are, it helps you make the difficult decisions. You know, sometimes the, the most challenging decisions uh, come along. In some cases, for, for me, I've been offered, uh, in some cases, tens of millions of dollars, you know, within a week to go straight into the accounts of Psykinetic, which we go, you know, we'd be set for a very long time and we'd be able to do all these things we want to do. But then we go, it doesn't feel right based on yeah. where it's coming from. Uh, and, uh, you know, and, and from that perspective, knowing your integrity, knowing your base and knowing what you're inspired by and who you want to be in the future, that can help you make a lot of those big decisions to figure out what's right and what's not. I think, I think uh, what you're sharing with us is, is, is the power of having a compass that continues to ground us, but also continues to, to point in the direction of our North Star and, and how it is that we can continue to sail towards that North Star one, one, one that continues to be very hope-filled um, and, and, and optimistic. And, and I love that in many ways you are a radical optimist. And on top of that, very briefly, to enjoy the journey. Yeah, 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 absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, that, we, we, have to find, we have to find moments of pause. You shared this beautiful story earlier on where, where when Dad took you to, to uni and you so, uh, followed that journey and then you, you shared the, the story about the Duplo blocks and watching them unfold. It reminded me of, of the time where, where my dad bought me my very first Lego set and, um, and I was a mad, I became this mad Lego, uh, you know, groupie, but also at the same time mad Star Wars, you know. So my neighbour had the Millennium Falcon as a, as a Lego. So, you know, I was very envious. But then I had all these other kind of starships and other things that going on. And, and, and what was interesting was, you know, what I learned from my father was that I had to follow the instructions that were listed in the book, in, in the Lego, right? Because my father was, was you know, brought up in, in, a, in a convent in, um, in Amatrice, Italy, where we're run by nuns. So, you know, hospital corners on beds, everything had to be a particular way. So I remember doing that. But, but I also remember when I finished that, he would come to me now and say, well, now pull it apart and make whatever you want. And what I learned in that moment from his example was there was value in the foundational knowledge of the instruction, but there was great value in the place of play and curiosity. And what was really important about that play and curiosity was he allowed me, he gave me the permission to step into my own vulnerability because I don't know what the outcome was going to be. I didn't know if it was going to work, but the ideation was an important part of the discovery about my capacity, not just what I was creating. In that moment with your father and moments similar to that, what did you discover about your capacity? To me, it was imagination and a very similar yep. thing when it comes to Lego that had that had a huge uh, influence in my childhood because we didn't have a great deal of toys uh, and we had none of the exotic levels of, of Lego. It was all the basic building blocks. Uh, I didn't even, you know, I remember when I was given a new set from, uh, from an uncle, we, we finally had little characters, you know, the, the little Lego men. Uh, yeah. 
two of them, two trees, I lost my mind. First thing I did was make this giant rail gun on the way home uh, with the, the two trees on the end of it. <laughs> I put down the window and I was pretending to shoot out the window and it snapped right off. I was, uh, it was gone. I was like, Dad, you've got to go back and get it. <laughs> <laughs> it was on a freeway, so we weren't. Uh, but what happened was, it's a funny thing, like you were saying, there's instructions when it comes to the Millennium Falcon. Actually, for the first time, I've done one of these, uh, put together one of these Lego sets with a friend of mine just, just two weeks ago as a, a DeLorean. Uh, All right. A real DeLorean right here. <laughs> but we <laughs> uh, got the Back to the Future kit. And I went, wow, you know what? I didn't even know this was, I, I assume this was what Lego was like when you've got the kits. But my childhood is very different because we only had all the basic building blocks, but we made right. everything out of that. And what I was learning from all of these spaces very quickly was the power of imagination. We would imagine things. We would come up with ideas. I'd talk about it with my siblings. We'd make these ideas and these imaginary spaces together that we'd go into, and then we'd often build those with Lego as well, um, build our own toys. So they were the types of, of things we had a lot as kids. Um, from Lego to, there was a thing called Oodles. And I had just a... Mm -hmm a kit of all these random things that you could glue together and create your own little, uh, we'd created little skiers and, and little machines. We loved that. And that all came back to that childhood curiosity, that imagination. And that was something I had to try and bring back later in life once I started getting into the, the deeper levels of technology. So I've got two quick questions for you before I hand over to my <clears throat> esteemed colleague. My first quick question is, how can we help those in schools and the school leaders, in many ways, have the courage to value by giving time to the creative pursuit of imagination and wonder and all. It's huge. It's a, it's a challenging thing, I know, but I've seen it done so well with some educators who do take that space. And sometimes the good news is it can be, in some cases, pretty easy to do once you, once you get there. But to set out a challenge... And that challenge, we particularly see these in STEM competitions. And uh, there, was a, there was a story I've, I've shared with you before, but I just, I just think it was, it just encapsulated so much of, of the learnings that I love to see. And I've seen other people replicate this type of idea to set out a challenge and let students learn for themselves, create, and then teach the teacher. You know, that is huge. Um, and, and the story of, of that one for, for everyone else um, was when I went to uh, to judge an app making competition in Bondi Public School, year four kids. This to me is still so standout because I'd never seen it before this. I've seen it since, which is awesome. But this teacher turned up, she was fairly new. And what she did was she told the year four kids, average age of 10, she said, you're all gonna build an app. So here's the challenge. We're going to go out, learn how to make apps. You're gonna have to learn that yourself because I don't even know where the resources are. She said, I want you each to create an app that you want to make. So go out find out how to do it, um, build your own apps, and then the project will end when everyone has a completed app. So if anyone is struggling or around you who, who haven't, haven't finished theirs, uh, help them. And she said, and at the end of it, you're going to teach me how you did it. Now, that was incredible because I was seeing the most amazing completed apps for one kid made a, an app for, for iPads that could um, help teach other kids science. There was a, another, uh, another kid who, who made a pet tracker to track where the, the cat was going around the neighbourhood um, and just keep, keep an eye on them. They all found sort of social and environmental things that they wanted to, to look at. 
Uh, but the winner, she made an augmented reality application. You go to the beach, you open up her app, and it was to help reduce the number of drownings um, for people getting caught in rips at the beach. You scan the water, and uh, and she told me, and this was these were her words. She goes, "I haven't quite got the image processing working yet to classify where the rips are." <laughs> right. And this okay. is year four. This is year four. I was like, "That's all right. You're, you're ten. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and she said, "But I can simulate it." I went, "Okay, of course you can." And, uh, and so then she, she says, so what happens is you look back over the water and there's words that pop up above the water where you can swim and where you can't. She yeah. said, finish that much faster. She started helping some of the other, um, her, her colleagues. And at the same time, she went, actually, I want to make this better. So she looked into universal symbolism acknowledged across the globe, big red crosses where you can't swim, smiley faces where you can. Now, the reason I tell that story so often is because I'd never seen anything like that. And this, is, this was 2014. We're still wrapping our heads around augmented reality now. This is 2014, and she came up with a working model of how to do that. And this came back to that courage of the, of the, the teacher. You know, I talked to this teacher. She didn't know how to make apps, but to be able yeah. to say that to, to the classroom. Now, I want to see more variations of this where kids can draw on their own inspiration, experience, have, have the space to play. You know, and this is what the teacher said. If you like skateboards or surfboards, do it on those. It doesn't matter what, what the content is as long as it means something to you. And to me, I thought that was okay. really. It's really interesting also to hearing that uh, it wasn't just her app that, that struck you. You mentioned that so many of the young people that leaned into to this place of yes, where the teacher gave them the permission simply to dream and wonder, yeah. were inherently around some type of social enterprise that was about... Uh, to support the other. I mean, young people are deeply conscious. We see it all the time in their advocacy for, for social change, particularly around the environment, particularly around uh, diversity and inclusion and gender, gender rights. Uh, you know, uh, they fight really strongly around issues of discrimination. So there's a different, we're entering in a different world, you know, where we're unleashing the, 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 the natural human potential of all as opposed to some. I love that ideal. You know, I love that ideal because I feel that that, that approach is transformational for, for a world that hopefully uh, continued to, to learn from the sins of its past. So my final question is this. You mentioned a great Italian before in Leonardo. I'm going to mention another, Michelangelo or Michelangelo. He once said, the greater danger for most of us lies not in setting our aim too high and falling short but setting our aim too low and achieving our mark. That's right. How can we support others to live a life of integrity, leading meaningful lives as good people who have high expectations for what society could be? That is firstly beautiful and a quick uh, personal story there. Uh, the artistic side, you know, that was something I used to exhibit quite often. And uh, in year three, I, uh, I entered a, a national art competition. I, I was not the sort of person who won awards when I was in, in school, uh, but entered a... Oh, you, national... You've made up for it now, mate, but keep going. <laughs> so I entered this art competition and made a, a collage of a national park, of the Kuringai Chase National Park. Um, did this collage with paintings and, and pieces of cardboard, put it all together, entered into this competition and I ended up coming third um, in the, the national competition and I was given a Dimmick's book voucher. I spent it on a Michelangelo book, Michelangelo. <laughs> yeah. Me, just being able to see that and, and half a year later, 
uh, I, uh, I got to, to go to Rome, Florence and Venice. Uh, and so to actually go over there and, and end up at uh, the Sistine Chapel, just amazing to be able to see the Statue of David, to just get involved in that, that sort of creativity, that culture and get, get an insight into it. What I love about that, that quote that you said is, you know, being able to set the bar high and not being scared of falling short. To me, if you set the bar low, then that's what, where you're going to be in life. Learn to set the bar high and it doesn't matter if you fall short. Um, that was one of the first lessons that I learned. And uh, coming out of, out of high school, I set the bar way higher than I thought I was able to achieve. And I did fall short, but just by a tiny bit. And, uh, and to me, that didn't, that didn't matter. What it did was it started making me think that way over and over again, setting the bar higher and higher to the point where we were designing things that we thought, this sounds impossible and it might be, and we'll find out, but we're happy to give it a try um, and, and come together and just see how far we can get. Now, that to me is incredible. Know yourself, know what drives you, know what you want to be in life, just have an idea of it and set the bar high, then take yeah. action on it. Absolutely love that. Jordy, I'm sitting here and in really, really enjoying the way you enjoy your life and the energy that you just have for all around you and, and the work and the purpose and so on. You've built for yourself a remarkable personal brand. It reminds me of what Jim Collins talks about in Good to Great, where he, he says that really great leaders have both humility and willpower and the capacity to bridge the apparently irreconcilable gap between those two things. There's a deep moral code to what you do and a very strong sense of purpose. You, you both wonder and wander, which I really, really like. You come across as being you. You talk about the importance of knowing yourself and as being you. E. Cummings once said that the hardest thing in the world is to be yourself when everybody is trying to make you like anything else other than yourself how do you stay authentic how do you stay authentic as a leader and how do you keep going and doing the things that you do so it's such a great such a great question such a great way of, of phrasing it too because that is central to everything that i've felt i've i've learned and experienced over time I was being pushed into not being me for so long. It, you know, you just go with the flow of things. You go with what people are telling you you need to do. Uh, to stay authentic to yourself, strangely enough, takes practice. But once you are pretty practiced in it, it's like anything. It's, it's like, uh, you know, working out or getting on, on any particular pathway and track. You start to find it easier and easier. And you find it easier in different contexts as well. And that was hard because I'd find, you know, we're all different in different contexts where depending on where we are, uh, for me being on camera and, uh, and trying all these different spaces, being on stage, I thought over time, I just want to keep practicing being myself because then you don't have a mask on. You don't have to keep up with a persona that you've put out there that isn't you. And I was being told over and over again, you know, this isn't how we do things here. Let's change it up. Let's make some changes uh, to you and how you're coming across and, Let's be a bit more, uh, a bit more presentary. And I'm going, no, this is not what I want to do. I'm going to stay authentic to who I am. And when it comes to personal brand, like you said, I've never marketed it. I've never put it out there and just kept pushing it. Instead, I just went, I'm going to stay true to myself, uh, do the things that I believe in, and let's just see if it starts to grow organically. And as you 
put yourself out there as yourself, you attract more of that sort of energy as well. So what I found is everywhere I go, I meet good people, people who want to see the world improve the way that I do. And to me, it gives me a lot of faith in humanity. So know yourself and keep being yourself. That's a fantastic way for us to finish, Geordie. You, you are the very embodiment of what it means to be a game changer. You do it all the time. You change your game, you change the game, you change the game of those around you. You love what you do and people love you um, as a result. We're so thrilled that you found the time today um, uh, to join us and talk about yourself and what it is that you're trying to do and, uh, and to pass on a little bit of inspiration to our listeners all over the world. Bravo to you and thank you. Oh, thank, thank you, Phil. Thank you, Adriano. Uh, I hope all our listeners just keep, keep enjoying life. You know, we've got this, this one gift, this one life. Uh, make the most of it. So thank you so much for having me. Game Changers is a podcast for those who want to change the game of school. Produced by Oliver Cummins for Orbital Productions and powered by a school for tomorrow, Game Changers is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play and SoundCloud. Tell your friends and don't forget to subscribe. Let's go.